This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by the City of Bisbee. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark Backlamore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. Join me to hear about the long and prosperous life of Star Trek, from the 1960 series to today, when there are actually five Star Trek series plus movies in production at the same time. My guest is Ryan Britt, an entertainment reporter and the author of Phasers on Stun, how the making and remaking of Star Trek changed the world. And the story of a woman who discovered her own artistic calling while she was living behind bars. That's next on Arizona Spotlight. Listeners, I know that you probably either love Star Trek or you feel indifferent. Maybe you actually hate it. But I ask you to consider that Star Trek is now a 50-plus year legacy of imaginative fiction that posits that planet Earth doesn't have to die in war and disaster. Instead, humanity might actually unite, overcome our differences, and solve our problems, creating a better future in the process. You can't find that kind of hope in too many kinds of science fiction. Journalist Ryan Britt has been writing about science fiction and Star Trek throughout his career, And more importantly, he's been thinking about Trek's pro-science and anti-racist messaging his entire life. I had the chance to talk with Ryan Britt about his book, Phasers on Stun, How the Making and Remaking of Star Trek Changed the World. After decades of good and bad times for Trek, I asked Britt if he ever imagined there would one day be no less than five Star Trek series on television at the same time. It's funny because when I started writing about science fiction professionally, it was like in 2010, right? So about 12 years ago. And at that time, you know, we were in between J.J. Abrams' Star Trek movies. I didn't really ever think Star Trek was going to come back in the way that it did, you know, in a way that it has post-2017. I tweeted this week that, like, I can't believe that I'm watching Ethan Peck's Spock, who is this wonderful actor who's uh, the grandson of Gregory Peck. And once you know that, you can really see it and just his, his look, his talent. The fact we have him as Spock, and I get him and I get Ewan McGregor back as Obi-Wan Kenobi the same day, or the same two days. I, I can't believe it. You know what I mean? Like, it's really amazing. And um, it's also convenient, too. You just watch it at home. <laughs> You've had a, an amazing amount of access to the Trek actors from all eras. I'd like to know... Which of the cast members that you've talked to would you really like to get more time with? Someone who you think, gosh, I wish I could have been able to speak with that actor at length. Well, yeah. I mean, any of the folks that are no longer with us. I mean, I, I, there are some people that had passed away that I did get to talk to who are in the book because, you know, the interviews come from a variety of sources. You know, some of them are interviews I did in different contexts. Some of them are interviews that I did um, well before I knew I was going to write the book. Some of the interviews I did specifically for the book. And then a good half of the quotes come from other sources that were not my interviews. But yeah, I mean, I never got to interview Leonard Nimoy as a journalist. I wasn't really a professional journalist when, you know, in 2014 when he passed away. Nimoy, I guess, would have been the one I would have loved to interview Nimoy. Um, DeForest Kelly, I met at a convention when I was a kid. Uh, yeah. I loved him. 
Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Of your conversations with Trek actors from any era, who is the person that you think maybe surprised you the most? Who did you end up engaging in a conversation with that truly became unforgettable for you? The answer is uh, Robin Curtis, who played Savick in Star Trek's three and four. Robin took over the role of Savick from Kirstie Alley after Kirstie Alley didn't return after the Wrath of Khan for a variety of reasons. But what's interesting about Robin is that she's in the phone book, basically. I just found her phone number on, and just cold called her and left a voicemail for her. And she just called me back. And we ended up having two pretty long Zoom conversations about the making of Star Trek Three and the making of Star Trek Four. And, you know, she was in The Next Generation later as a guest character in a Next Generation episode called Gambit. So then her experience with that and Patrick Stewart. And, um, you know, I include a lot about the character of Savick and uh, Kim Cattrall's character of Valeris in The Undiscovered Country and those connections uh, in one chapter in my book. And the reason why was just because I, I just felt like writing about this really interesting character that was kind of set up to be the successor to Spock. And then kind of didn't go that way. And so talking mm-hmm. to Robin Curtis, who's just this down-to-earth, funny woman, about that experience. And, and, like, let this sink in. This is the only person who played a Vulcan who was cast by Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> like, just think about that. <laughs> Kirstie Alley was cast by Nicholas Meyer for The Wrath of Khan. Mm-hmm. Leonard Nimoy directed The Search for Spock. He cast Robin Curtis. He taught Robin Curtis how to be a Vulcan. And then in that film, you know, Savick has to, you know, uh, guide Spock through his pond far. And then in the voyage home, there's this implied uh, intimacy with them. And I just was so fascinated by that. She gave me all this great stuff about how the kinds of notes that Nimoy gave her uh, to convey, you know, the uh, Vulcan emotion. She was a huge help and I think created more it helped me linger on that era of those films longer in the book than I think I would have had I not uh, gotten to speak to her. I feel like that a lot of Star Trek history books kind of glaze over Savick. They're like, yeah, yeah, Savick. Kirstie Alley was better, but then Robin Curtis was fine. And I'm like, I don't know. Robin Curtis was kind of great and like felt like a real Vulcan and she had a hard job there. You know, that was a tough gig for, for an actress uh, at the beginning of her career. So Nimoy chose Robin Curtis to become a Vulcan, but an actor he formed a pretty close relationship with was his successor in the 2009 Star Trek in the J.J. Abrams universe, as the fans sometimes call it. That would be Zachary Quinto. So tell me a little bit about what you discovered about what went on between Leonard and Zachary in terms of approaching the role, something that unfortunately Ethan Peck doesn't have the advantage of, of having that connection. First of all, um, I think that the best work on this was done by Adam Nimoy in the documentary For the Love of Spock. The vast majority of the research I did was an interview I had with Adam in 2016 about making of that film. And then, you know, all the interviews available with Zachary. I didn't do an original interview with Zachary for the book. But what I will say that's so momentous about that moment is that at the time it had not been done. The idea of recasting Spock had not been done. And so the fact that Nimoy was there to, to sort of shepherd, you know, it's not like Chris Pine got notes from William Shatner, or if he did, it wasn't on set. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that the fact that Nimoy was there for that film, you know, is really important. And, and the only thing that sort of it's similar to would be that we've seen subsequent to that would be like, I don't know, like Mark Hamill's relationship with Daisy Ridley or something in the Star Wars sequels. But even that's not quite right because it's not like a recast. But I think that there's just something about that J.J. Abrams film that's really magical, and I think it really holds up. 
And I think that Quinto is really good in it. I think that the relevant thing there is that Nimoy didn't have to do it. He didn't have to be gracious about it. He didn't have to do any of that. He had declined other Star Trek kind of projects for a while. And he did that, and I think that it made all the difference in making that movie magic. Now, with Ethan Peck, he didn't have access to Nimoy, but, you know, when I talked to Ethan Peck in 2019, right before Spock showed up on Discovery, you know, the first thing he did was to go to meet that family, to meet Adam Nimoy and meet Julie Nimoy and their spouses. And so, I don't know, I feel like Ethan Peck is doing something different than Zachary Quinto did. He's embraced it in in a different way. At this point... He's got, I don't know, five times the amount of hours as Spock simply because of all the episodes he's done. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I I don't want to pit them against each other, but I do think that Ethan has got a hard road and he is, I think, doing an amazing work, um, considering not only do you have to follow in the footsteps of Nimoy, but as you said, Zachary Quinto, who everybody loved. Let's talk about Nichelle Nichols, because you really drill down on an aspect of Nichelle Nichols' career off-screen that most people are kind of unaware of. A couple of years ago, I got the opportunity to interview a NASA astronaut. It was Mae Jemison. And did we talk about Star Trek? Yes, sir. We talked about Star Trek. Tell the audience why and why Nichelle Nichols and NASA have such a unique symbiosis that's been going on for decades without people being aware of it. In 76, you had the um, first space shuttle enterprise. Uh, and fans wrote to Gerald Ford and wanted the Constitution be renamed Enterprise. Yeah. And that happened. And then that's a big symbolic moment um, and very interesting. But Nichelle Nichols um, had become friendly with some NASA folks because of these sort of publicity appearances. And she was friends with a guy named um, Jesko Putkamer, uh, who was a... Uh, NASA scientist who did a bunch of Star Trek conventions. And she was also friendly with a guy named John Yardley, uh, who was the head of NASA's kind of, you know, manned space missions at that time. What's interesting is that she just looked around and was like, okay, I don't see this Star Trek future happening with all of my white guy cronies at NASA. You know, she was buddies with these guys. And so then she was kind of like, all right, you guys like Star Trek? I'm paraphrasing here, but it's kind of like she's like, let's make it happen for real. Yeah. Because the space shuttle program was happening and there were very few minority astronauts or female applicants. You know, she set out to do that, something about that. Now, she'd already had a company at that time called Women in Motion. And the documentary by Todd Thompson that sort of documents this is called Woman in Motion. And that was a 2020 documentary that was then released widely on Paramount Plus in 2021. And I interviewed Todd for the book and and for some articles about the documentary. And, you know, I asked him the same question you're kind of asking me is like, why was this not a bigger deal in the cultural memory? And even in her memoir, Beyond Uhura, Michelle Nichols, like, doesn't even spend a whole chapter on this. It's like a couple pages on this massive recruitment drive that she did for NASA to ensure that there would be more diversity in the space program. And, and it just it, it literally happened because of her. Uh, Ron McNair, you know, uh, Sally Ride, these people probably would not have been in NASA at the time. Uh, Judith Resnick was part of that, you know, at the time that she was recruiting. They just wouldn't have been part of the space program. And so... Yeah, and sadly, those it, names you mentioned were all on board the Challenger. Which is also something that, you know, Woman in Motion gets into that aspect of it. But, you know, then Mae Jemison is inspired by that, you know, and then is a NASA astronaut on the space shuttles later. That's a direct outgrowth of that. 
Nichelle Nichols did astronaut training. You know, she was capable of landing the space shuttle in the simulator. Shatner didn't, you know, he didn't fly the Blue <laughs> Origin capsule. You know what I mean? Um, nothing against Shatner, you know, but, I, you know, it's like there, there was a real putting your money where your mouth is with, with Nichelle. She wasn't a figurehead, and she told them, you know, that if after her recruitment drive, it was still a bunch of lily white astronaut corps, that she was going to sue them. You know what I mean? She was like, I'll sue you if this ends up, you know, I mean, imagine that. The joke I made is like, you can't imagine a more one-to-one. It's like, what if Julia Louis-Dreyfus became vice president in real life? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, that's yeah. kind of what it's like yeah. with Michelle learning how to fly a space shuttle and um, doing all that recruitment. It's a tremendous story, and I really i am glad you spent the time that you did on it. Um, you also mentioned a detail about a meeting she had with President Obama. Yeah, just that Obama like kind of took her aside and said that he had had a crush on her when he was, you know, growing up watching Star Trek. <laughs> Obama is cagey about going on the record about his Star Trek fandom, and yet any opportunity he had to talk about Spock or Star Trek, he did. People always would kind of compare him to a Vulcan, um, and I think that there's something to that. You know, I think that Obama's uh, love of Michelle, but also his love of Spock, sort of informs his personality. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine Obama having the exact personality he has without Star Trek. <laughs> you know, like, can't imagine it. Someone wrote about Star Trek a while back. I wish I could say who it was, but they were reiterating the reasons why they like it. And at the end of the list, they said, so I do like Star Trek. And maybe, just maybe, I like that darn old William Shatner. I do think that William Shatner's contribution to Star Trek really can't be overlooked in terms of making it cool, making it accessible, making it the target of jokes and the attention of pop culture. A more dull actor wouldn't have gotten all the attention for the show over the years that Shatner has. And also, I will um, say that I like Star Trek V a heck of a lot more than you do, apparently. (laughs) Whoa, no, no, no. I love Star Trek V. I think that what you're saying is in the chapter, what I'm saying is that Shatner was disappointed in it. Sure. And so the the feeling you probably get there is that it's a come down from Star Trek IV and that it could have been, you know, I think in that chapter I write about how it would have been great if they had gotten Sean Connery to play Spock's brother Cybok, which they wanted, which Shatner wanted. And, And if you imagine the movie like that, then suddenly it's like this kitsch classic. And now it's sort of a curiosity. But I I love the core of what Star Trek V is about, I love. I'm defensive about Star Trek One and Star Trek V. I love Star Trek the Motion Picture. I think that what happens with Star Trek the Motion Picture, and it's funny, it's like I knew that this was gonna happen. Once the book came out, is that a lot of my very first interview I did, the the, uh, writer was like, so you hate the motion picture. I was like, don't hate the motion picture. (laughs) (laughs) The, you know, the carbon units infesting Enterprise. I love the motion picture. It's fantastic. Yes. The thing is, though, when you're writing a book about the history of Star Trek and you're writing a a book about how Star Trek changed, motion picture splits the difference. Mm. Right. Like it's it's kind of like the original series. But then it's kind of doing this weird sort of 2001 homage, which isn't really right for Star Trek. Yeah. It needed to change more radically. And people are always like, oh, the Wrath of Khan is a return to form. It's like, no, the Wrath of Khan was a huge, risky departure. It was like saying Kirk is old now. Spock is a teacher. Spock's going to die. The Federation's a little bit more militaristic and things are not going well for anyone. And that was a huge risk they take. And I think with the motion picture, the storyline is very similar to the original series episode, The Changeling. It's not particularly risky in the way that the cast interacts with each other. It's just kind of a competent, beautiful, 
well-directed by Robert Wise, the legendary director, film with a wonderful score from Jerry Goldsmith. But I don't think that it was a movie that could convert the mainstream. And I think The Wrath of Khan was. And that's kind of why Bob Salen, who was a producer on The Wrath of Khan, is quoted in the book saying, with The Wrath of Khan, we got the people who only went to Star Trek Church every once in a while. Whereas the motion picture works for the faithful. You know, we get it. We get the motion picture. But I don't think it works to just be like, you want to like Star Trek? Here's the motion picture. I don't know. A big focus on Decker and Ilea, two characters that don't survive the film. That's a tough emotional investment. You know, whereas The Wrath of Khan is sort of the reverse. It's like, you know, here's Spock. And then, oh, my gosh, we're going to pull the rug underneath from you and Spock's going to die. But maybe he didn't. And you don't even need to know who the hell Khan is going into that. Like, it does such a deft job of pacing and writing. I just think it's a, it's the moment that the franchise leapt into the mainstream. Yeah. Wrath of Khan is just, it was such an important moment. I really like how in your book you call it The Wrath, whereas as a fan, <laughs> I've always either called it Wrath or Khan. I've never called it The Wrath, so that was enjoyable <laughs> to me, because you're very yeah, consistent I, about it. Yeah. I did that consciously, because I actually always was frustrated in other books, they just call it Khan. Yeah. I saw uh, like a re-release screening at like a local movie theater in like 2003 or something like that. And a really good friend of mine named Ishtiak was like, bring on the wrath. And I thought that was such a great way of thinking of it. So maybe that's why I called it that. He's also from Arizona. Oh, okay. uh, my friend Ishtiak Masood, uh, uh, we were roommates in New York for a long time. But yeah, but maybe that's why I call it that. Maybe cool. it's my friend Ishtiak. Bring on the wrath. Okay, I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. Favorite episode of the original series. Uh, I'll go first. 100%. Doomsday Machine. Don't mm, you think wonderful. I know that? <laughs> well, I interviewed Norman Spinrad, who wrote that uh, episode. Yes, sir. He was really delightful, um, and wonder wonderful, delightful man, and just wonderful writer. One of the very rare times where they talk about radiation before they beam into a situation. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, I uh, the original series. I'm going to answer in two ways. Is right now, um, I would say that my all-time favorite episode of the original series is A Taste of Armageddon. Mm. Um, and I love that because I think it's a classic Star Trek premise. This, these cultures fight their war with computers. Uh, you get a great action-adventure uh, story of Kirk and Spock having to bust out of the, the sort of like prison that they're in. Mm -hmm. But then the action-adventure is tilted towards a nonviolent message. So it's mm -hmm. like Kirk's fighting for peace. I just love that. You know, They quote from A Taste of Armageddon in that wonderful um, Apple TV show, uh, For All Mankind. Chris Marshall's character is this astronaut in this alternate 80s, and she quotes from Kirk, you know, like, we don't have to kill today. And I just think, like, that line is so good, and, like, all that stuff is just great. I love Taste of Armageddon. Um, my current episode that I've rediscovered from the original series that I truly love is The Trouble with Tribbles, because for a long time I was like, yeah, 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 The Trouble with Tribbles, it's famous, whatever. But I have a five-year-old daughter. And we watch it all the time, and it just cracks her up. And I've just been able to see all the wonderful nuances that I missed or I'd forgotten um, in that episode. Kirk is so funny. It just kills my kid. She just dies laughing. She's always laughing, talking about the tribbles falling on him. It's just a great piece of work. And so I think that I've been recently just like, you know what? Trouble with Tribbles is really good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you show her the original episode or the remastered episode with additional tribbles? I guess we've only seen the remastered one because it was the easier one to watch on, on Paramount+. Plus. Okay, um, fair enough. So, yeah. But, but but I will say she also started with the animated episode, the sequel. So she saw them in reverse. 
Yeah, I really credit you for giving the animated series some air because others gloss over it, uh, dismiss it, but I feel like you give it a really good reading and you bringing up the scene in an episode called Yesteryear where we see mm. Spock's youth and we find out how he lost a beloved pet. You point out it's the first time that a child dealing with the loss of a pet was dealt with seriously. First kids show to do it. At the end, the line you quote about how Kirk is kind of callous, and he says, well, you know, the loss of a pet doesn't really matter. And Spock replies, it might matter to some. Yeah, yeah, That destroyed me when I was a child, and it still destroys me. Well, and that episode was really formative because it was written by D.C. Fontana, who had written all the great Spock episodes from the original series. Like, the continuity she created with that with yesteryear is amazing. And they even referenced it in Strange New Worlds recently, talking about Spock's pet, Seelot. They had Ethan Peck talking about Aichaya in, like, a Strange New Worlds episode. But J.J. <laughs> Abrams plucked directly from that episode, you know, where Spock gets bullied in the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie. That's taken straight from yesteryear, where the bullies are, are, are taunting Spock about his half-human uh, heritage. You know, if one thing has driven me away from Star Trek, though, Ryan, it's prequels. It's going back, not looking forward. And I think that's why I, as a fan, embraced Picard. Because I felt mm-hmm. like for the first time in so long, since the end of Voyager, what's your take on that? LeVar Burton once famously said, Star Trek should always be looking forward, never backwards. And I mm-hmm. agree with him 100%. And so that wall of loving the original Star Trek and then having to warm up to new actors and new continuities, finding out that Uhura mm-hmm. and Spock and Kirk all serve together on Pike's Enterprise, it breaks my brain and it kind of breaks my heart. Yeah, I hear you. And I love Picard. And I got to interview Michael Shabon extensively for season one. And he's my one of my favorite novelists. And so I was really excited to get to talk to him about Star Trek. And I, I actually think I was one of the fans who really loved Star Trek Picard season one. And, um, and I agree with you about the kind of looking forward. I guess my response to that would be, we're going to get another season of Picard. It's already done. We're probably going to get another show set in that era. Discovery season three and four are 100% set in the future. Um, and I think possibly going to go even further in the future. So then the question is, what about the reboots and the prequels? It's a question of emotional stakes, is that instead of physical danger stakes, you know, which are prevalent in action-adventure narratives, I think that what Strange New Worlds posits is that maybe we can have emotional stakes, and maybe those emotional stakes are, are different. And I think that for characters like Pike and Spock, that we kind of know where they're going to end up, it creates an, a different kind of tension. Now, is it what they should be doing? I don't know, but there's an episode that aired today of Strange New Worlds that I think is one of the best new Star Trek episodes to come out in a long time. And there's an episode that airs next week that I think is going to be really controversial, but I actually can't stop thinking about in terms of what they were trying to say with it. Yeah. So I think that if I'm thinking about it a lot and we're debating about it, then there's something good happening. Thanks to Ryan Britt, senior entertainment editor at Fatherly and the author of Phasers on Stun, How the Making and Remaking of Star Trek Changed the World. Though he has local roots, Ryan Britt talked to me from Portland, Maine, where he lives with his wife and their triple-adoring daughter. Live long and prosper. Art, music, and many other creative outlets are known to have therapeutic benefits for their practitioners. In many cases, they provide essential solace for people in difficult situations. 
Tony Paniagua brings us an example as he talks with a successful Tucson artist who began her personal transformation while she was living behind bars. In 2005, Tucson resident Marianne Chisholm was sentenced to prison for nonviolent white-collar crimes. She was sent to the all-women's Perryville Prison Complex in Goodyear, Arizona, facing as much as 30 years of incarceration. It was dirt, and it was orange, and it was brown, and it was gray, and it was miserable. It was lonely. It was uh, an indescribable kind of lonely. And that was just one of the challenges as she tried to adapt to her solemn situation. I have a bipolar type 2, obsessive compulsive disorder, clinical depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. But Chisholm decided to get busy and not allow her surroundings to dictate her future. She discovered art and never looked back. So I started doing portraits and paintings. I was in prison for 14 years. Um, and I won relief and release on appeal. And during that time, I painted every day, or almost every day, that I could, I could manage. I painted 5,600 pieces. And I would meditate while I did it. So it was like mandatory meditation. Is that what the artwork meant for you? Yes, yes. So I literally sat in the same place on my bed, literally, for 14 years, sitting in a yoga pose. 5,600 works of art. That's an average of more than one every single day for 14 years. It was my sanity. It was my therapy. And it took me out of there. So I was never there when I was painting. And the colors were everything. Everything that I wanted to have in contrast to what I was living there. Bright blues, cerulean, magenta, the bright kind of glowing warm yellow of the sun with a little tinge of orange, not that industrial, I'm an inmate orange. No longer an inmate, Chisholm is now a professional artist. She has sold hundreds of traditional works and NFTs, non-fungible tokens that can be used in displays such as digital canvases or television screens. I made a decision when I started painting that I would paint emotions. So it wasn't faces or people, it was emotions. And now I've taken those pieces from times of great suffering and turned them into living works of art digitally that, uh, that convey almost like a little film. She's also trying to help others with similar backgrounds, hoping to provide some inspiration and support. While incarcerated, Chisholm found out and participated in community exhibits organized by the Prison Ministry Program of the Episcopal Diocese of Arizona. Reverend Kim Kraka has been involved in this effort for years. This is my church. <laughs> this is my spiritual fulfillment. This is my role as a servant of God to help, I mean, we're specifically told in, in, in Matthew to visit those in prison. One of her major goals is to raise awareness about the correction system and the individuals who are serving time. The exhibits present the public with donated works from inmates or former inmates. They are driven to, uh, to provide this expression and I am driven to share it with others. Women in confinement cannot profit from their creations, but the shows accept monetary donations that can be distributed to the artists whenever possible. 
Reverend Kreka says the ladies cannot be sent any materials to work on their art, so the inmates have to buy them at the approved prison store or be creative. For example, some recycle envelopes or use their fingers instead of brushes. I think that this art exhibit is really unique because there's so many perspectives that are on display here, but the point is that their hearts are in all of them, and it's really nice to show that whole range because all of them have something to say. Reverend Kreka says the work can range from professionally intricate to basic, but the cathartic benefits are invaluable. Not only learning how to forgive themselves, but how to uh, forgive those who wronged them, for those who abused them, because many of the women are suffering from PTSD from horrible abusive relationships that they were involved in. So that message of forgiveness carries through in their art. As they learn to forgive themselves, their art changes as well. For Mary Ann Chisholm, this talent has opened a life-changing path that continues to surprise her. It still blows my mind that people want to buy something that I created in my mind. Am I uh, lucky? Yes. I have 50,000 followers on Twitter, and I, I am definitely lucky. I have a terrific group of people in the community supporting me. Could you ever visualize yourself in this situation a few years ago prior to 2018? I'm a firm believer in the laws of attraction. So every day that I wanted to feel sorry for myself or I wanted to give up, I would think instead, it's a good thing that I'm gonna be home soon. It's a good thing that this painting is going to make me famous someday, you know, just anything positive that could be thought instead of the negativity. And I tried to convey that to the other inmates and people that were in prison as well. You don't have to always be sad. If you want to change your reality, you've got to start living in that moment. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance from Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you to the City of Bisbee for their support of Arizona Spotlight.